0: Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast with me and my co-host Chloe Bunter. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry, however, many of the practices we take for granted are out of date or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room in Pilates, and we're here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a fair few F-bombs thrown in. This show is about debunking the myths and giving you science based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher. If you've been enjoying the show and you want to give back, give us a five star rating and write us a glowing review on Apple Podcast app. That will help other instructors find the show and let us know we're making a difference. Hey, Chloe. Hey, Raf.
1: How are you doing?
0: Yeah, I'm awesome. How are you? I could have
1: guessed that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like our listeners are like, what is she going to say? What is she going to say? Is she awesome? I am awesome. I'm sorry, guys. I'm awesome. I haven't got anything else to write home about in regards to that. Um, are, you yeah. is
0: aw- are you awesome like John Gary?
1: Oh, no one can be as awesome as John Gary. Are you kidding me? He's like the most awesome. of can we- Shout out to John. Yeah. Shout, Shout out, to John, out to John. John Gary, dear friend. Dear, dear, dear friend of both of ours, mm. isn't he, mm. Um, Magical man. What you see is what you get. Like, that is he. He really is that, that awesome. awesome.
2: Yeah.
1: I know people are like, you know, and they meet him in real life and like, because I've, you know, I was lucky enough to go on tour with him the last time he was out in Oz. And people are like, whoa, face to face, you you really are. You know, what, what you see on your YouTube, what you see on your John Gary TV, what you see on Insta. Yeah, that's just that's
0: how you. he is, yeah.
1: He's just cause hes hes authentic. He's mm. beautiful. He's uh, just freaking loves what he does, mm. and it just oozes out of him. And he's just a really—he's a beautiful human. Yeah. I just adore him. Yeah, mm. grateful for Good his time. friendship. Mm. Um, but this is this this is actually so shout out to shout out to John, and if and you're not Mike. following John, you should be. And Mike, his beautiful partner, Mike, um, who I got to meet last time as well in real life, and he's yeah. It's just, he's magic, but anyway, this is not like, this is, this, <laughs> this episode is, is actually about motor learning.
0: Motor learning. Yeah. Motor A.K.A. Learning. Queuing. Queuing. Yeah.
1: Or how, A.K.A. how people learn movement skills.
0: Yeah. turns out there's a fair bit of research in this area. We've done a, we've done a show on it before.
1: We have done it. So, we've yep. done a show on queuing before, and we wanted to share with you this incredible interview really incredible interview, um, an incredible resource. Mm. Um, Raf spoke with two of the preeminent researchers in this field in the world, mm. um, Professors Luthwaite and Wolf. Mm.
0: They're, like, uh, the, they're and, like the, yeah, Gabby and Rebecca. Um, Gabby um, and Rebecca. Gabby Wolf and Rebecca Luthwaite, both Dr. Gabby Wolf and Dr. Rebecca Luthwaite. Um,
1: kick-ass yeah. women, kick female researchers.
0: And like these, together they've published like over 200 papers in this area. It's like these women are just, they really, really know their shit. <laughs>
1: they in like i could I, I mean i have listened and i will say if you're listening like oh, no i've listened to this before
0: listen to it again
1: listen again no joke i've listened to this myself and my team we would have listened to this episode at least 5 times through from beginning to end yeah. each and i actually listen to it again every time i'm delivering um content on specifically on queuing yeah, and and motor learning, uh, and every time I listen to it, I pull another gem out of it, another nuance. Because because it's a it's a it's a big interview. Yeah. Uh with with a lot of juicy detail.
0: And and Gabby and Rebecca are like both just huge. You know, they both got just huge knowledge and hugely deep and broad knowledge of, mm. um, you know, motor learning, which is what the the, the academic um, to yes, the academic term for, you know, what we in Pilates would call queuing. Um, and you know, they, they in this interview, I think, you know, I'm really proud of the way I did this interview because I feel like I managed to pull out of them and, you know, thanks to their great, incredible kind of uh, ability to articulate their thoughts. But I, I feel like I managed to pull out of them like the, the, the essence, you know, the most important parts of what they've learned in 30 years and 200 plus research papers on you know, how to how to teach movement skills effectively to humans. Um, and it's like, just listen, you know, if you want to get really good at that stuff, like just listen to this interview about 10 times and um, just do the things that they suggest. And it's really simple how to do it. Like just, yeah, this is, this is truly, truly gold. I and mean, this is way better than anything that I learned in my master's degree in clinical exercise physiology, and we did, I did freaking four years of motor learning um, mm-hmm. at at uni. And this was, you know, this interview I learned more than I learned in four years of uni. And so, you
1: were, yeah. uh, you were an exceptional interviewer uh, in this rough Like, I, I totally agree. Like, it's you, the way you, yeah. Because, like, I could hear, like, there was a few things in this that seemed new, that were kind of new to us, wasn't there? Yeah, they were. Um, and, and so I love that you went down that track. Uh, so we got even more updated with our knowledge. And there's a, I, there's a great part in this interview that really always stands out for me when you talk to them about some specific research and they both go, oh, wow, you've really read that. <laughs> like, there was this moment <laughs> where it was like, I feel like they really enjoyed the interview too, because you had really gone there with the research, and you were really genuinely excited yeah. about it, I mean, and wanted to know about it. And these they guys seemed are shocked. Like there was a moment where they seemed really shocked in yeah. that. Yeah, They're so awesome. I actually, I really
0: dug. I'm like, that. I'm like the 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 fan who's like. Bought all of the obscure, you know, B-side, yes. you know, yeah. outtakes yeah. and knows, you know, oh, yeah, I know which guitar you recorded that on in Tokyo sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. So that's kind of like uh, how I feel about these women's work because they just do phenomenal research that has really just in basically hugely influenced the whole world of uh, exercise science and motor learning. And uh, like, I just can't emphasize enough how awesome they are and and what a great contribution they've made to you know the the state of knowledge in this area and uh i have in fact read just about all of their research so um it was such a pleasure to talk with them
1: yeah and it really comes across i love Mm. listening to this and i will be having a sixth sixth listen to it again (laughs) i'm sure i'll just keep listening and listening so yeah
2: yeah
0: well enjoy good one raf thank you very much rebecca thank you very much gabby for coming on it's a pleasure to have you
2: thank you very much for having us pleasure to be here
0: um is it possible so the first and biggest question i guess is is it actually possible to influence human learning through the timing content and mode of feedback or essentially is the is there such a thing as teaching and if so can you give an overview of what we know about the key variables in terms of teaching? So, in other words, if somebody wants to be an effective or even great movement teacher, what are the most high-value things for them to focus on and to become skilled at?
3: Yeah, very important question. And I actually think this may may be a lead-in to talking a little about our optimal theory because that's based on the extensive reviewing of multiple literatures to wind up with three factors um, that identify factors that we see can uh, help optimize or or enhance learning and performance. Um, Autonomy support, meaning support for the sense of personal agency of that learner. Um, Enhanced expectations of positive experiences or outcomes and an external focus of attention or concentration on the movement effect one wants to produce. Um, So if you focused on those three areas at the time in which someone is practicing a task, um, what you are probably doing is providing um, a rewarding experience to the learner, um, autonomy, support, and enhanced expectations of personal experience act to produce a sense of anticipation of reward. And that actually um, influences the release of dopamine in the brain. And when dopamine is paired with practice, you get um, more consolidated memory um, and more success in the performance of the activity And then the external focus of attention through, you know, over 200 studies um, suggests that when we influence people or people influence themselves to think about what it is they're trying to accomplish, a target, um, an external goal, um, they can more efficiently perform it.
2: So... Yeah, if, I've, perhaps if I may add some practical examples, perhaps. Um, I think it's fair to say that most instructors probably have a tendency to give a little bit too much feedback, too much corrective feedback. Um, and sometimes they tend to take, you know, good performances for granted. Um, so I think there are many things a teacher can do to really facilitate learning. Um, for example, in terms of providing support for the learner's um, need to feel autonomous, they could you know, ask the learner when they want to have feedback. Um, they could ask them how they th- think they did. Um, they should also ask them about what their goals are. Um, and if they give feedback, they should do so in a kind of respectful manner. Um, the type of language um, people use really matters. Um In terms of enhancing expectancies, um I think it's really important that teachers highlight good performances um, um, They could also comment simply on improvement. sometimes people don't realize you know how much I have actually improved over the i don't know weeks or months of training um and it's also okay to sometimes just disregard mistakes and um you know perhaps focus more on the The good things, and lastly, um, in terms of the external focus, Rebecca mentioned it's really important to try to, you know, or to not refer to body movements um, because we know, like she said, from many many studies that that is really detrimental. So feedback should ideally um, promote an external focus of attention on the intended task goal.
3: Um, you know, one thing I found in, in, particularly in um, the clinical realm, is that um, the language of body parts and body movements is so strongly part of the culture that it can be a little daunting to think there might be another way to describe things. But you can separate how you might describe a movement, such as first the feet move and then the elbow. That's a description of a movement, and to convert that into an instruction. And there you avoid the discussion of body parts. So you might say, um, aim at the bullseye. So it's related to the effect of the movement. So description does not equal instruction or feedback. And, And I think the faster people move to the what you would optimize for instruction, even in their descriptions, the better off they're going to be and the learner's going to be. It won't be confused.
0: Wow, there's there's so much in there that I want to dig into more deeply. Firstly, I would just like to ask uh, Rebecca, because I understand that your specialty, you come more from the psychological side of things, uh, whereas, mm-hmm. Gabby, you've come more from the uh, attentional focus um, Approach? Am I mm-hmm. correct in yeah. that? Uh,
3: yeah, with, they're yeah. both psychological, but yeah. mine's more motivational, and hers is more sort of the cognitive uh, mm-hmm. aspect.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. So, you mentioned in terms of uh, enhancing expectancies, uh, the, the some you know, you kind of hinted at some of the physiological or brain-based mechanisms. So, there's a release of dopamine, which enhances um, memory consolidation and there are a bunch of other kind of physiological things that you have written about in terms of the the mechanism for how uh enhanced expectancies or people basically expecting to succeed you know is beneficial and so for instance different um physically separate brain regions coordinate more effectively and there are physical uh connections made between neurons in the brain um, that are facilitated by that process but is there also just a, a motivational uh aspect to it like if you think you're going to succeed or you feel like you are succeeding you're more likely to keep practicing and more likely to feel good about the process and just like you know inst- in, you're going to spend more time practicing
3: i think there is that um but i also think motivation is transduced into those physiological signals that consolidate the memory so both both happen. The the motivation is intrinsic to the activity of the brain, as well as something that does lead people to keep coming back to that movement context. So you're right, and and yet I think it's it's going to be in the next few years. I think far more integral to think about the the biochemical and the uh, brain activity aspects of motivation itself, and that it's setting up the system to perform better.
0: Right. So there's a kind of a virtuous cycle there, where if you're more motivated, not only do you practice more, but your practice is more effective.
3: Exactly. Wow.
0: Exactly, uh, Gabby. Um, I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, one of the things that. Uh, Rebecca talked about a minute ago was essentially it's it's possible to give, you know, too much feedback and it's quite common to give too much feedback. And that kind of gets into uh, something I've read in your earlier work, the guidance hypothesis, which essentially predicts that when feedback is very frequent and especially when feedback is given during the movement learners can become dependent on the feedback or in other words they perform well when given feedback but they don't retain or learn the performance when tested later so can you talk us through the i mean it, so firstly is that still a relevant uh, concept uh, and if so can you talk us through the guidance hypothesis and most importantly what it what it tells us about the timing and frequency feedback
2: um <laughs> You know, the guidance idea is a pretty old concept. I mean, it was first proposed in 1984 and uh, many studies have been done. And like you said, they have demonstrated that people um, learn better, you know, when they get less feedback or feedback is delayed and so forth. Um, You know, I'm... (laughs) I have distanced myself a little bit from that concept um, simply because I think it, most studies were, um, in this context, were done, um, you know, in the laboratory, obviously. But they used typical lab tasks, um, tasks where people tended to become dependent on the feedback, and so yes, I'm sure people did become dependent on it in those situations. But you know, when you look at more complex skills. Um, you know that we have used more in the last few years. I think it's not too much a dependency issue that makes people <clears throat> learn less effectively when they get a lot of feedback. Um, it's also the fact that feedback often in experiments tends to induce an internal focus of attention. And we've actually found that if you say reword the feedback, the same feedback essentially, but you um, worded in a way that it promotes more of an external focus, more is actually better. So that completely you know, contradicts the, the guidance hypothesis. So I think the attention focus plays sort of an important role there.
0: Right, so the earlier research that seemed to suggest that less frequent feedback was better was uh, possibly just an artifact of, they were using internal um, sort of focused instructions And so the less that you get, the better you perform. Whereas when you flip that to an external focus, the more you get, the better you perform.
2: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think there's also
3: an element kind of alluded to, which is feedback has motivate motivational properties and it's not a neutral, you know, here's the deviation from the target. Mm -hmm. It, It really says you're doing well. Okay. Keep going. Or, you're not doing so well, so, uh, you know, you find a way to sort of save face. And so very often people don't want or don't need the feedback frequency because they know by that time what's, what's wrong, what, what they could adjust. And so sometimes there's even an irritation factor <laughs> as somebody is giving unwanted feedback. Right. But if someone wants it, then they're sort of in a state of readiness To figure out what they want to
0: try to adjust next right so that 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 poses a, a question which is the last one i'd like to ask to kind of dig into your opening kind of uh response which is is there a place for pointing out what someone's doing wrong you know if if they're asking for instance say oh you know what am i doing wrong or should we always just catch them doing things right and reinforce those
2: no, I absolutely think there's a place to let them know, you know, what could be improved upon. Um, and people obviously want to learn. They want to know, you know, what they could do differently to make their performance better. Um, but I think we said earlier, for one, it would be useful to actually uh, let learners decide when they want to receive feedback. But also, I mean, when an instructor gives feedback that is um, corrective in nature, um Again, the language matters, so um, they could, for example, um, you know ask the learner if they would like to have a tip <laughs> instead of bombarding them with um, corrections um,
3: and also, if they've set it up so that <clears throat> along the line they're providing opportunities to say, Yeah, I want some more of that, or I want to see that demonstration again. if they've done that collaborative setup well, then um, if there's a need, and some, once in a while there will be a need where someone is made, say performing something in a way that could be harmful, that would be a great time to say that's not the moment of choice I need to provide. So you could say, if I could give you a tip, we want to avoid you know hurting your elbow. So it, 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 most people have found and we've found in you know the research that this works best. Some technique works best. So I I think if you really boil it down to creating a collaborative environment and asking for their input, what do you think is off there? And they'll tell you, um, and most of the time they will tell you, even though we tend not have to have asked, so we don't know what they know, but they do oftentimes know that. And so um, once you've set it up like that and you have a need to provide specific feedback, um, then you do it, you say, I want to avoid um, hurting your
0: elbow so uh, you might want to try it this way. So where's the balance point between you know kind of assuming you know safety considerations aside where's the balance point between letting someone essentially kind of muddle through and and figure it out um and you know letting them and you know reinforcing when when they happen to get it right, and between that and at the other, ex- other end of the continuum, maybe, you know, telling them, oh, you need to change this, you need to change this.
3: I think one key to the balance is are you establishing early success? So if they're struggling to find the early success, that's when you jump in and say, what about if you tried it this way? How would that work? And mm-hmm. then they do. And then they succeed a little better because that's an expert's tip. And so that would be a good time to to jump in. But if you're trying to establish um, a situation where you're pairing rewarding things with their practice, then you're looking for opportunities to create a, a perception of early success, which might mean you define the task in a very liberal way at first, and then say, well, you're, you're getting too good at that. Maybe we should up the ante a bit. And then you start to, to work on defining it even more uh, critically. So I think that's a key. It, it's not challenge. It's early success plus challenge is what you're trying to go for. So that helps establish kind of that place where you um, feel the need or you don't feel the need to.
0: Right. So it's it's partly about the way in which you guide them through or focus them on the goal and, you know, def- or how you define the goal, essentially, if you say, okay, success looks like this very easy, you know, low bar, essentially, hey, great, you, you did that really well. Look at all the things you did right. And then you, now let's make it a little bit more challenging by, you know, adding these extra elements or making the target a bit smaller or whatever it might be. And that way you get to build the challenge plus give them that early experience of efficacy.
3: Yes. And I think, you know, sort of older models thinking about motor learning focused on the word challenge, effortful activity, but really it's success and challenge that we're finding makes a difference. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's exactly there.
0: So we've established so to zoom out again, we've established or you've you've established these three sort of key uh, elements of effective feedback, which are a support for the learner's autonomy, so engaging in a collaborative process where they feel a sense of agency or they you know, feel like they have some control or choice in the process, uh, enhancing expect- expectancies, so um, uh, enabling or facilitating them to expect success and experience success, and then an An external focus of attention, you know, focusing their attention on a point outside their body that is related to the outcome of the movement. So, in those three broad kind of uh, categories, can you give examples of how you would apply that within, say, um, a rehabilitation context?
2: Okay.
3: So, let's say that uh, we were working on a, a very foundational activity sit to stand. Somebody just had a stroke, for example, and you're trying to help them regain the ability to get up. So you might, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give you a little scenario and then I'll break it down as to what reflected what. But you might say, okay, let's check it out. See if you can get up out of this chair and grab the water bottle from it. So push your shoes through the floor. Good. How many seconds do you think it will take you to do that? Yeah, five seconds, okay. So give it a go when you're ready. And then how many seconds this time? Trying to string some performance attempts together into a sequence, speeding it up, which sometimes helps a lot, and counting or measuring. And essentially by saying, for example, push your shoes through the floor, that's an external focus. Good as part of that enhance expectancies. How many seconds do you think it would take to do that is a goal setting collaborative approach and both autonomy support and goal setting is one of the prime movers to enhancing expectancies. So that helps there. Um, Then asking things like, what do you think? Go when you're ready. Those are autonomy supportive elements so within the space of one or two sentences you can blend those things in there um, and promote uh, somebody engaging with some gusto in a sit to stand movement
0: hmm. that's brilliant i also love uh the how long do you think it will take you actually it presupposes that they will succeed at doing it so you kind of slyly or subtly further enhancing the expectancy there.
2: If, if I just chime in here. So if we uh, use a more sports-related example, perhaps, you know, a, a tennis coach could, for example, ask a learner um, what they want to practice first, you know, serves, backhand strokes, uh, volleys. Um, so that would be uh, autonomy supportive. Um, interestingly, um, you know, very small choices can even make a difference and can be very effective. Um, and that actually has a double advantage. You mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, when people, um, are motivated because say their autonomy is supported, they also want to do more. We actually found that in a number of studies that people want to practice more <laughs> just by giving them simple little choices, um, and, you know, we can enhance people's Confidence or expectancies, um, for example, by defining success somewhat liberally. Rebecca mentioned it earlier. So, um, you know, you could say well, any balls ending up in a certain area are good ones. You know? And finally, of course, uh, using that tennis example, so the focus could be directed to the racket or, say, the ball trajectory or the spin on the ball, for example.
0: I'm going to give you a uh a slightly uh thornier question. What about in some kind of sport or or discipline where the outcome is the so I'm thinking of something like ballet or gymnastics, where actually it's an aesthetic kind of discipline where the shape that the body makes or the you know the gracefulness of the movement, et cetera, is the outcome. How would how could you or could you apply an external focus in that situation? And if so, yeah, mm-hmm.
2: in those cases, you know, images work really well, and I've always argued that you know, giving people an image <laughs> uh, is just like an external focus because it directs their attention externally. They don't think about their body movements; they're just thinking about producing what they're imagining. So, for example, in ballet, um, we've actually asked ballet dancers what they focus on, and Some external foci that they reported were um, climbing up a corkscrew, you know, when they do a pirouette or um, a grand jeté, you know, a jump. (laughs) Uh, They they imagine jumping across a lake or gliding through the air. Um, Or um, in in, in the study, actually, uh, we asked gymnasts to... um, do a turn in the air, 180 degree turn. And we put a little marker on their chest and asked them to concentrate on the direction which the marker was pointing. That was the external focus condition In the internal focus condition. We said, you know, focus on uh, the direction of the chest or the the hands that were crossing in front of it. And just that, you know, difference. (laughs) I mean, just, making people think about the marker rather than their body movements um, had an effect in terms of how high they jumped during this turn. And also um, it affected the quality of the movement. So the external focus was significantly better in in both regards.
0: Wow. So zooming out to a little bit more of a, almost a conceptual level, can you, we've got these three elements the autonomy support expectancy enhancement and the external attentional focus and we know uh that they're additive so in other words uh any two of those are better than any one and all three are best of all does this um and this kind of this is essentially gets to the heart of your optimal theory so do you have any kind of unifying thoughts or theories on on how we should start conceptualizing learning? Like, should we be thinking about learning differently now that we know this? And, and if so, how?
3: Um, well, I think we should be thinking about how to create the early success experience. And that's not always something that we have thought of. I mentioned before that we sort of had thought about make it challenging, And that's the best thing for the brain. And the brain is the start of this story. The central nervous system is affecting peripheral nervous system. And so you get um, efficient, smooth brain activity with, say, an external focus. There's only been a few studies so far, but certainly they show us something that reflects what we see in the periphery, which is less co-contraction when someone's performing a movement, yet greater force or speed. Um, and so you get the sufficiency effect, and that's be- perhaps because the brain and therefore the musculature is um, just using what they need because they're not—it's tra- not trying to micromanage those, the activity within the brain, as you might get if you had an internal focus, like move this muscle, then this, then this. You would be kind of jerky and, and uh, not very fluid. So. Brief instructions play out in the brain. They cause smooth, efficient brain activity. Uh, They avoid micromanaging, which is sort of uh, more instruction than you need to accomplish the goal. The commands to muscles follow this brain activity. Um, In the case we are anticipating uh, rewarding experiences of having autonomy and of expecting success, um, you bring to this story the rewarding circumstances and that help the dopamine helps to support both the immediate performance of the movement and the consolidation of memory of that movement later. Um, And that could, the rewarding kinds of things could be anything from social um, reward to monetary to welcome performance improvement and performance improvement itself is of course rewarding to most people who kind of engage in this. And when you pair it in time, that dopamine burst due to the reward. With the motor practice, you get this amplification and the, the sort of structure and functional connections of the brain are promoted. And that's probably why you get this efficiency of movement.
0: Is is there any research that you're aware of, Rebecca or Gabby, that because you've talked about dopamine quite a bit. And is, is there any research that just looks at Uh, just making the practice fun, you know, like but not necessarily in relation to a sense of achievement or any of those other things that you've been talking about. It's just like maybe if the instructor was, you know, telling funny stories or, you know, some other, you know, there was a social engagement as part of the learning. Are you aware of any research on that? And if so, yeah, what what does it look like?
3: Yeah, it's a great question because does the experience Expectation of success have to be related to the task at hand. And then it appears that it does not always need to be there. Uh, for example, there's a study um, in uh, Parkinson's disease where they showed um, the participants a Charlie Chaplin film, Chapman film before they did something. There are um, a few studies coming out in the video gaming literature that suggests that making something just fun, <laughs> you know, exciting, novel, and other aspects uh, that are also rewarding to the system, that can help performance. Um, so I think, I think it's a good strategy, um, but it may be a better strategy, uh, ultimately, to find your fun in the intrinsic motivation of the movement experience. And the reason I say that is because perhaps generalization or transfer to other circumstances is promoted by enhanced expectancy for success in the task and in related activity. So I think that, um, for example, self-efficacy or confidence is an expectancy, and that relates specifically to the tasks you're engaged in. So it wouldn't hurt to believe if I could do this, I can do that next most uh, challenging thing about it. So uh, both can be effective, um, but if you can find the joy in the movement, <laughs> I think you're um, headed, headed to being able to generalize that to something new.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so showing, showing Charlie Chaplin films before practice can help, but uh, probably not as much as, these three kind of key elements of the optimal theory? Uh,
2: you
3: know, um, probably, but that that sort of remains to be empirically determined. But there certainly have been people who have applied social reward after the performed practice itself, and that helps to consolidate, apparently, the memory of that movement. So it, it's not even only at the front end, but anticipating this uh, even if it's coming in the gap between practice and later retention performance um, could be helpful so huh.
0: so if somebody if somebody does a great job uh, you know with their permission obviously sharing that on social media you know in a sort of salutary way might might enhance their learning
3: theoretically it could <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think you always have to be uh, careful about other aspects but i think yeah i mean i i think people don't often get the chance to be the the uh, top performer so if they have done something well i i I suspect that that would be good as long as they like that to be recognized in that way
0: okay so um my current understanding um, is that the theory of why external focus feedback is more effective relates to the idea of higher or lower level locus of control, which I got actually, Gabby, from your book from 2007, Attention and Motor Skill Learning, um, which is essentially the idea that representing a, the movement as individual muscle contractions is a kind of a low level locus of control, whereas representing it as a coherent whole movement is a high level locus of control so as a beginner we tend to represent movements at a lower level locus of control we think about where do my hands go where do my feet go and as we become more skilled we tend to represent the movement at a progressively higher level of control so external focus on movement outcomes promotes a higher level locus of control or effectively progresses the learner to a later or more advanced stage of learning is this still a useful way of thinking about this? And if not, what's a better way to represent this concept?
2: You know, I, I would not use the term locus of control because it has a different connotation in the motivation literature. Um, but what we do know for sure is that when we adopt an external focus, when we focus on the task goal, our movements um, are more, are controlled more automatically. Um, which is similar to what you see typically at a more advanced stage of performance. So when movements are controlled more automatically, um, that means um, movement control requires less attention. Movements are more fluid, more efficient, more accurate, and so forth. Um, so there's quite a bit of evidence for that. And, um, what I should perhaps also point out is that if Focus on a more distal movement effect uh, is typically more beneficial than a focus on a more proximal movement effect or outcome. So one that is closer to the body. So, for example, uh, if a golfer focuses on the hole, or a dart thrower focuses on the you know the bullseye. Um, or a musician focuses on the sound they're producing, that would be a fairly distal external focus. And that is typically more effective than say, focusing on the golf club or the dart in your hand, or, you know, the piano keys, for example. Um, so movements are controlled even more automatically when the focus is a little bit more distal. Um, although uh, if I can add that real quick, um, that. To some extent that depends on the skill level so it you know when you have a novice golfer and you'd simply a- and ask them to focus on the target or the hole that wouldn't be as effective perhaps as asking them to produce a certain club motion so it, it depends a little bit on the complexity of the task and the skill level
0: right so attentional focus for beginners um while it should still be external it should be a little different from that of more advanced learners. So um, I'm thinking of your kind of early 2000s, those golf experiments where you had novice golfers folks on either the club or the trajectory of the ball. And intuitively, I would think that the trajectory of the ball represents the, in quotes, outcome of the movement at a higher level than the movement of the club and therefore would result in more effective learning. But that's not what you found. So you're suggesting that a more... Uh, a, more, a more direct relationship between the movement uh, process and the movement outcome is probably more beneficial for beginners.
2: Yeah, I think it's fair to say, uh, although we we still don't have a lot of evidence for that, but it, it does make sense. So if somebody still needs to learn the technique, you know, the movement form, it makes more sense to give external cues that are more related to, well, movement form rather than just the overall outcome
0: of the movement yeah. right so you might be putting dots on people's chests or you know talking about the yeah. position of their shoes or those kinds of things at the as a beginner whereas as a more advanced student you would think you might uh use more distal or sort of higher level or higher order outcome kind of mm-hmm. cues or imagery yeah, yeah
2: exactly
0: so uh, so there is there is a difference between teaching beginners and more advanced or more highly skilled people and are there any other you know to what extent if at all are are, are there other differences so for instance in relation to feedback frequency that we talked about before is that something that as a general rule you would give differently between um, a beginner and more advanced student? Or how would you vary any of these parameters, um, if at all, for beginners or more advanced students?
3: I think the principles generally apply across whatever level of experience somebody has, but I think the details within it would differ. So, um, you know, a very experienced performer uh, who's probably self- talked their way through that task before, heard their coach say something many times over, they may not need that, the frequency of that being said again. Um, Whereas the beginner, let's kind of go to that golf example, maybe they need to hear more frequently, uh, strike the ball with the club face straight. So that's an external cue that's not the same cue that the experienced golfer would use at all. It might be um, hit that spot on the green in order for the ball to roll toward the cup. So more distal, etc. So they're both external, but they're of a different level and different proximal distal relationship. And I think the perform the uh, motivational aspects may just differ in, in the details um, and maybe there's a whole lot more collaboration with the experienced performer, but there still could be some with an inexperienced performer. So I, I think it's really, and it's interesting because we, we decided that we would not uh, include some of these ways in which you produce autonomy, support, or expectancy, et cetera, within the body of the theory itself. We just said, get to that place. And it's going to differ in how you choose to get to that place, depending upon the uh, sensitivities of your performer, the experience of your performer, the skill of your performer, um, their prior experiences. So that part is going to vary. It's going to be customized, but uh, still want to do something in that category to to help bring out their optimized motor system
0: right so essentially we're we're applying those three principles of autonomy expectancy and external focus right the way through somebody's skill progression but the detail of how we do that is going to vary between people and also as people's learning becomes you know progressively more skilled uh, we will bring that for instance bring their attentional focus to a, a more distal or higher order outcome, and possibly, um, you know, they will have increased autonomy in their practice because they have more um, more actual, more experience, essentially, and more, uh, more agency to direct their own learning.
3: Right. Very good. And I think, uh, you know, on the autonomy support side, we certainly have had uh, studies that show that young children respond very well to autonomy. It's as important to them as it might be to an experienced performer, but you're going to do it in different ways. So one, one tip to often talk about is to make sure your choices are between two good choices, not a good and a bad. So sometimes where people start off attempting to apply these is they give a lot of autonomy to somebody, but maybe they would be best to say, well, we're going to work on these two exercises or these two activities today anyway. They are both good. They're both going to be helpful. Which one?
0: Right. Rather than rather than just saying, what would you like to work on today? Because maybe the person doesn't have the task maturity to make a, a useful decision for themselves. Hmm. Okay. so. I have a, a, a question which came from a student, um, which actually got me very interested, and I've done a bit of digging into your literature, which is, so we talk, you've, we've talked a lot about the, the value, and it seems, you know, from hundreds of studies that are externally focused or instructions and feedback are more useful than internally focused instructions and feedback but is 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 there a play uh is there a for for many of the studies that i i've looked at the internal feedback condition seems to be pretty similar to the control condition so in other words it didn't seem to harm performance significantly but it just didn't help performance is is am i reading that correctly and if so, could you you know could you comment on that? Like, do people do you think that people sort of naturally adopt an internal focus? So, when we give them an internal focus instruction, we're not really changing anything, or is there some other kind of explanation for that?
2: Mm-hmm. I, th- I think you're right. I mean, most studies that used uh, all three conditions internal, external focus, and a control condition, they found that um, internal focus and control conditions result in similar performance or learning Um, and We think it's because well people when they're left to their own devices. They tend to focus On what they're doing So you can call that an internal focus actually we have asked people in some studies what they focus on and it turned out that in many cases They did focus on their body movements Um, You know when, when people perform studies in the lab, for example, or elsewhere where there's a, you know somebody else watching, for example, they, they tend to become self-conscious. <laughs> they focus on the self, and that, as we know from many studies, is, is detrimental. Um, and we think that's the reason why, unless you direct people's attention externally, you see non-optimal performance in control conditions
3: one thing that seems to be the case is um we can't tell because of the just total preponderance of internal feedback internal cues that you know therapists instructors coaches teachers give Mm -hmm. people may simply be modeling what they've heard and so to say that it's the natural state we can't say Mm -hmm. and in fact You know, I I always think about this, the circumstance of um, let's say that you had, uh, you know, it's hard to think of a baby animal thinking in terms of how to move its forelimb um, and then graduating to thinking about the leap across the chasm that they have to take to avoid a predator. So I don't think it's the natural state of moving organisms to think internally. I think that perhaps this is a reflection of how pervasive internal cues have been.
0: We've tried, um, we've tried, them, we've tried them wrong.
3: Right. And as we, we sort of have, you know, everybody speaks in that language, and so it's picked up, and that's how people think to talk to themselves as well. But the other interesting thing will be, as we look into the future, uh, there are a number of studies that have looked at, you know, what kind of uh, internal or external focus of tension Do coaches give, do therapists give, et cetera? And as it progresses in time, I think that we'll see fewer people giving internal cues because they'll become more aware of the evidence. So that will also indicate that wasn't necessarily the natural state of the organism. Mm -hmm.
0: So... For for somebody then who uh, maybe a, has a client who comes in, whether this might be in a physical therapy situation or just in an exercise or sport situation, where the client you know probably has been trained by a whole bunch of previous coaches, trainers, whatever, um, and says to says to the practitioner, you know, where should I be feeling this, or which muscle should I use to do this, or what should I be doing with my gluteus medius in this, you know, how would you approach that? Situation.
3: Hmm. I would probably say. Go ahead. Well, let's try it that way. So you think about the way you're thinking, and then I would try to convert it right away and give them another option, (laughs) another external option. So it might be uh, you want to rotate so your belt buckle is facing forward. For mm-hmm. example. Um, and then you'd say, so how, how did that feel? And I I don't have too many circumstances in working with uh, therapists and their patients where they will say that wasn't, that didn't feel better, mm-hmm. didn't do better. Mm-hmm. And they'd use it as an external focus. Uh, somebody says, Dorsiflex your ankle. And the patient's trying very hard <laughs> to make that happen. And then or plantar flexion, you, there's a tile on the floor. Say, so touch that tile, touch where the intersection of the tiles is. They do that, and all of a sudden they feel, wow, I can do that. So I, I think quickly, quickly um, go with something that makes them feel successful, which is the movement. And that that's kind of the start of,
2: they will listen to, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, tips. You know, there's also no, re- no reason why a PT or other instructor couldn't tell their clients about, you know, the findings and inform them about the benefits of an external focus. Um, people might come up with their own external foci. They might try out different ones and see what works for them the best, you know, and play with different foci, that my, uh, external. My
3: colleagues and I just recently published uh, and worked on a major uh, randomized clinical trial in stroke rehabilitation using um, many of these principles. And we actually decided to try to teach patients, these were in the um, outpatient, acute outpatient stage after stroke, uh, how they could apply an external focus to whatever they were trying to do. And so we gave them two examples. Um, If you wanted to, you know, throw a, a, a piece of paper into a trash can, uh, what, you know, you would focus on the trash can as your target, as opposed to what your hand is doing in releasing it. And we gave them another example. And then later uh, we debriefed them and we asked them, uh, so, you know, in the case of uh, throwing a ball, what would you think about? And that patient, even after stroke, was able to say, "Well, I mean, you would focus on where you're throwing the ball, of course." <laughs> so this is teachable, uh, even to people who um, you might not think uh, can catch that. <laughs> so uh, I think that is worth a try because it really, uh, if their all of their movement system is affected, this can be helpful.
0: Mm. And that uh, I love that experiment because. It's uh, generalised, and you use an implicit teaching strategy. Um, so that's 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 a really elegant little experiment. Mm-hmm. We've come to the end of the questions uh, that I had, but I, I've got a couple of or two extra questions, if I if I may. Yeah. Um, the the first one is, uh, and I'd love to have a response from from each of you on this one is. You know, there's a there's a huge literature in this area, and Gabby's written. I know that attention and motor skill learning, and also contributed to a textbook with Dick Schmidt and Re- Rebecca. I know you've got scores of publications. Where, what is if somebody sort of wanted to get their head around this at a high level, or or make a start on understanding, you know, this area what article or book have you given as a gift or recommended to people the most?
2: Well, that's an interesting question. First of all, I'm impressed by <laughs> what you've read, apparently. you <laughs> It's very impressive how well you know the literature. But, um, yeah, you're right. This textbook um, that was originally published by Dick Schmidt and now just came out recently Um, in that textbook, I, um, you know, talk about the optimal theory, of course, and I try to make it digestible and understandable for people. So that would be a good resource, I guess. Um, Another
3: thing is that we do have a website, um, optimalmotorlearning.com and we have a lot of publications and other things listed there and and connected there. If they're ambitious, I say read the original Wolf and Luthwaite, um, 2016 theory paper we have a brief theory paper and i'm actually working on an, a clinical optimal paper right now so and and there are all all of the studies that have been produced with this optimal uh, framework are are on that website and they could see what uh you know looks what uh, what attracts them uh, so it might be an empirical paper or if they want the overview the theory paper is there.
0: Great, and we will link to all three of those in the notes underneath. Finally, uh, we're living in this, uh, in a I think a cultural environment. I agree with what you've said, Becca. That uh, I think we've essentially just developed a culture amongst physical therapists and fitness trainers and sports trainers of talking about internal focus cues, and I think change is definitely needed and. Uh, you know you two are spearheading that in terms of research Um, if you could have a giant billboard you know let's say a metaphorical billboard so that you know millions or billions of people would see it you know what would you put on it
2: let's see (laughs) that caught us a little bit by surprise that question
0: I know. I'm sorry. I know. I know you did say you like to like to have a chance to prepare for the questions, and I sprung that one on you at the last minute.
3: Uh, we probably have already said a few things, but yeah. one of them is um, collaborate with your learner and performers. Uh, that that provides sort of a so collaborate, um, facilitate early success. Uh, mm-hmm.
2: And focus on the goal. Yeah. Beautiful. You know, when, I, when I think about all these findings, um, it really impresses me that um, you know the motor system is quite smart. <laughs> and if we just let it do what it wants to do in terms of achieving its, its goal, it works so well. A person to be confident and focused on what their goal is and the motor system is so good at figuring out what it has to do to accomplish it. You know, we've mentioned earlier that movements are so much more efficient and, and you know, the brain activity is uh, so much more efficient when we just simply focus on the task goal. And we call this goal action coupling in the theory. And so sometimes we just worry too much. We focus too much on what we're doing. We just, you know, focus <laughs> on, what the goal is, and then let the body do its thing.
0: Uh, you must be familiar with The Inner Game of Tennis.
2: Oh, yeah, I read that decades ago. Yes. And, <laughs> Always.
0: and that, that was written from a completely unscientific perspective, but it seems to wow. have anticipated the research brilliantly. What are your thoughts on that book?
2: Oh, it's been, I don't know how many decades, but I found it fascinating <laughs> when I read it as a student, I think. <laughs> Uh, yeah, hadn't thought I, about it in a long time. I
3: think many people
2: have have intuitively uncovered
3: a number of these factors. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what we've learned with the advent of neuroscience is this issue of, of pairing in time these good things with practice. Mm-hmm. So I think people have have got it right a lot. Um, and the external focus is, is sort of is uh, overcoming that, you know, um, semi-natural <laughs> whatever that is uh, focus. So I think actually we've got it. there are elements that people and great coaches and teachers have been doing forever.
0: So when this is not rocket surgery, it's, it's, You know, really, it's kind of common sense stuff.
3: It is, but I also think we're kind of entering a a new age of integrative movement science, Mm -hmm. bringing, you know, thoughts and brain activity and muscle activity and performance, etc., together.
0: Hmm. It's very interesting you say that, and this whole, your kind of whole, the way that the research has developed over the last few years, uh, moving uh, you know now that the the external focus literature is so well established, moving into these areas of autonomy and efficacy and expectation is that it seems to me to be paralleling the the shift to a more biopsychosocial approach within the rehabilitation sphere as well. and that that seems to me to be kind of the way that all of these things is kind of a um, a dive, a convergence you know between a lot of different areas in that regard.
3: I agree, I agree. Yeah. And I think, you know, as somebody said, we'll find out later as it goes on, but you know, the uh, there's nothing so practical as a good theory. <laughs> and and just understanding if we have a way to put these these factors in play, um it, it will result in better learning and performance.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Gabby and Rebecca, thank you very much. Um Very grateful for your time and expertise. It's been a real pleasure talking with you.
2: Thank you. you Same here, Rafael. Thanks for the excellent questions. Really appreciate it. It was good. Thank you.
0: After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert